in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is my podcast, Bad With Money a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you and we destigmatize asking questions. And I have a lot of questions. 
If you are anyone at all interested in starting to invest or becoming a better investor, you're going to need today's episode. And you're going to need to take notes while you listen. When I was looking for topics this season for Bad With Money, I texted my friend and fellow entertainment business mogul, Anna Akana. What should I do as a topic for this season of the podcast, I asked. I'd asked a few people, and I didn't really expect that much enthusiasm. Anna immediately responded in all caps, YES, THE FUCKING STOCK MARKET. Anna was aghast at how she felt we'd all been intentionally misguided and or uneducated about investing, and that she herself had realized that investing was the key to financial freedom. And the numbers she shared were staggering. She's made a lot of money just by investing. She sounded like she'd taken a seminar, and it turned out that she had. But not in the bad multi-level marketing scheme kind of way, like in a real educational way. She also helpfully broke down some jargon I absolutely had no idea about. This is why it's so helpful to talk to your friends, and why talking to your friends and other people about money and not making it taboo has been the thesis for this entire show for eight seasons. Talk to people about your money. Anna, it turned out, had been taking stock market classes for years and had been doing her own obsessive reading and supplemental research on investing as well. This is not exactly the kind of thing that comes up at like YouTube award show cocktail parties or while we film sketches together or while running into each other at bars on the east side of LA. Anna's a very talented creative and I knew that, but I had no idea she was so into the stock market. And I bet there is someone in your life who you think you know everything about, but you've never actually asked them about money. Our other guest this week is Shinobu Hinder, the author of the book, Investing is Your Superpower. It's no coincidence that both Anna and Shinobu are women of color. Anna is Asian, Shinobu's mother is from Japan, and her father is from Kenya. They both have experiences outside the traditional wealthy white male perspective we typically get while talking about stocks. I didn't want to do another investing episode, as helpful as they all have been, that featured the voices of only white women. And I take responsibility for that particular booking oversight, more than just white ladies talk about stocks. When you look up the racial wealth gap, one suggestion always made in articles on Forbes or NerdWallet is to invest. But less broadly, the obvious problem starts with who has access to generational wealth and capital. In October 2020, the AP News reported in an article titled Stocks Are Soaring and Most Black People Are Missing Out that only 33.5% of black households own stocks in 2019, according to data released recently by the Federal Reserve. Among white households, the ownership rate is nearly 61%. The article attributes this in part to minority groups' preferences of keeping their money in safer quote-unquote places, which we will get to with Anna and Shinobu. And according to the National Community Reinvestment Coalition's 2020 racial wealth snapshot, Asian Americans are the most economically divided racial group in the U.S. It's complicated. You can read more about that research at a link I'll put in the description of the episode. I love research. All this to say, there are voices that are not as prevalent in the stock market and investing conversation, and we're going to learn a lot today, starting with Shinobu Hinder. I am a certified financial planner, and I run a financial education business called Empowered Planning. First question, 
is why did you want to focus on investing for women? Like what made you see those gaps? Well, I worked as a financial planner for about a decade where I was working with high net worth individuals that really needed solutions to work their money, especially if they're transitioning into retirement. So I, you know, I was running a book of about $350 million under management. Mm-hmm. It was fun because you were getting to plan and do these strategic moves with part of someone's life and a lot of money. I had then transitioned to a job where I was a financial educator for a large company. And I was going around doing tons and tons of workshops. I did over 500 and it was a different audience. It wasn't necessarily people that had a lot of money saved. And so I was getting many questions after I would do a workshop of somebody saying, okay, thanks for this information. How can I catch up? They'd kind of tell me they were a few years away from retirement. And when we really dug into what they could do, a lot of times it wasn't looking so good. So it was like, what's the equity in your home? Where could you kind of move where Mm -hmm. you could potentially have lower expenses? Where does family live? And we weren't having financial planning discussions. We were having discussions on how can they survive in retirement? And the common theme that I was getting from these folks were, I wish somebody would have told me this sooner. So it was kind of completely different from the job I was doing before where people had this wealth that they essentially needed to last and didn't want to lose. Mm -hmm. So it kind of opened my eyes to that. But what really happened was I transitioned to being a mom and I was working tons of hours. I was traveling at least one week out of the month and it kind of just seemed like we had to hire a bunch of help for my child. And I'm like, this just isn't what I had envisioned. So I had left my job Mm -hmm. and immediately was receiving tons of phone calls from friends that were my age that I thought were very successful in their own industry. And they were asking me all these questions about, well, looking to buy our home, how are we going to do this? How can we invest? And I was really surprised that they didn't have more of a baseline knowledge. And the more I talked to them, they just weren't getting the education. So while I had been 10, now 15 years into my career, I was doing this every day, all day. And they were doing their jobs every day, all day. And they were really good at what they were doing. And there's no way I could do their job. Mm -hmm. But I'm going, well, if you don't have this now, and I've been giving a lot of these workshops and people didn't have this close to retirement, like, holy crap. I need to make sure I can tell as many people as possible, give them the education, and then it's up to them. If they want to move forward with it, mm-hmm. they can. If they don't, they don't. But at least I can sleep better at night knowing I've provided the runway, and then it's just kind of up to them rather than it not being provided. So that's really the focus. And I always felt a little left out when I was working in the industry because I was a woman. And they're just the, the numbers, you know, women versus men working at a lot of these places, which was just a smaller population. So that was why I focused on women, because I wanted women to have a bigger voice. And many times when I was working with partners, it seemed like a lot of the day-to-day financial duties were being left on the shoulders of many of these women, but yet they didn't have the tools or the systems in place or even know who to go to mm-hmm. to make these decisions. So that was the focus or why women specifically. Was it like you're working there and it's a lot of white women or the people that are coming to you for advice or the people that have the money that are able to do these things are white women and like you're not really seeing a lot of people like you in the investment space? I think there's definitely a mix. I think people like me have been louder in the space and kind of been jumping up and down, like, look over here, pay attention to me. And so I've seen (laughs) more of that in the last 
five years than ever before. Right. It's been, it's almost completely flipped over for me. And, and I've kind of surrounded myself with people that are more similar to me. So it could also be that element where I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm kind of free to move around and, and do things differently because I have my own company than kind of working in a corporate space. I have your book. I read your book. And we kind of start with the basics here a lot. Mm-hmm. So what is the difference between saving and investing? Yeah, that's a great question because I think people interchange those a lot. Where if I'm asking right. kind of first questions when I'm working with a new group of women and they will say that they're investing, when we really dig into it, what they mean is they've been saving money and putting it in a savings account. So investing actually is participating in the stock market, participating in some kind of investment where you're leveraging your money and you're taking on some risk. When people are saving, it's really just that. You're taking money, you have cash, you're putting it in a savings account, maybe getting some interest these days, <laughs> very little, and, and it's kind of parked there. So the growth on that's going to be really slow. And with us now seeing inflation starting to creep in, you're potentially losing money on that cash. Investing is you're actually taking on risk buying something into the stock market and you're seeing those values fluctuate day to day. Which can be uh, sort of scary for people. So like one of the questions we get a lot is, what if I don't have enough money to invest? What if like investing just seems so far out of my sphere? I think that there's barriers that we can put up internally. There's the barriers of us saying exactly that. I need more money to invest. I don't have enough money to invest or investing seems really scary And then there's the external barriers of, you know, looking at a company and saying, well, I don't really feel like that's my kind of company. And there used to be a lot of high minimums. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't actually buy a mutual fund or buy a stock unless you had, you know, quote, a lot of money. That could be a couple thousand dollars to get started. But because we've been so loud in this industry, and I think this generation coming up. Oh, wow. Companies are changing. So they've kind of democratized investing. Some companies, you don't have any minimums. You can start investing with $15 and they're waiving the fees that they had before on low balance minimums that you needed to meet, or you couldn't even purchase something to begin with if you didn't have a minimum. Now you can. If you just said, I have $15 a week that I want to put into a mutual fund, wow, you can do that now and you can have it automatically happening where you couldn't do that a few years ago and definitely couldn't do that when I started in this industry. So you're talking about like, oh, I'm seeing the companies that are available to invest in and I like don't want to invest in these companies or they're not sure what's in the mutual fund. They're not sure even for the company. If we're talking about someone saying I'm saving, but, you know, let's say I want to buy a house in eight years from now and I know I want to save. Well, if it's not growing in the cash account, let's say it's just like less than 1% that they're getting. But in the meantime, real estate prices are growing faster than what you could get in your savings account. Mm-hmm. That eight-year time frame that may be more like 15-year time frame, And like you're kind of always missing the boat because you're not keeping up with the costs of real estate. So when you go to invest, you need to open a brokerage account. You need to go to an investment company to do that. And then you have a billion options. So that becomes a barrier for people to go like, uh, what's a brokerage account? I don't even know what that is. I just want a regular account. So it's kind of just understanding a lot of that terminology, but a brokerage account would essentially be a individual, completely taxable account that you could purchase mutual funds, stocks, exchange traded funds, things like that, that you wouldn't be able to get in a checking or a savings account. What do you mean by taxed account? 
So money you've already paid taxes on, so not like a retirement account where you're not paying taxes on the day-to-day transactions. So like if you invest in a mutual fund, let's say you put $10,000 in, it goes to $15,000, you sell it, you have to pay taxes that year on the extra $5,000 where you don't have to do that in a retirement account. We just call that a taxable brokerage account. Got it. So I have my like ETFs and mutual funds. And then I also have like a little TD Ameritrade account that's like my own that I like invested in Etsy and JetBlue, you know? So like, what is the difference there? So your TD Ameritrade account would be a brokerage account where you can buy anything, mostly anything inside of there related to the stock market. So if you go to these bigger companies like a TD Ameritrade, um, a Vanguard, a Fidelity, a Schwab, they're going to have those accounts that you open that you have access to trade inside of them. It was easy to open the account. I was like worried. I was like, what do you do? You just you just type in tdameritrade.com and then or you just type in yeah. vanguard.com and then you sign up and then you and then you put a little money in. Like it it seemed so much bigger in my mind than the like actual reality of it was. Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, right? When people go to those websites, sometimes they're like, eh, a lot of stuff on this page and I don't really know what I'm looking for, but it is that simple. There's a button that says open an account and Uh because of technology now, they can do it all online in a few minutes, which is very cool. And the other thing is to have someone who is helping you invest in like a bunch of different types of accounts or do you even need that person? So it depends on your comfort level. Mm -hmm. I think there is an element where you need to understand risk when you're investing because let's say you open your brokerage account, you're like, this is cool. You have money going in there. If you're buying individual stocks, that could be considered much riskier than buying a diversified mutual fund. But when you say diversified mutual fund, that means a ton of different things. Someone might say, Mm -hmm. you know, it's diversified because it's investing in a lot of different companies, it might be called a growth fund. And then you might find another fund that says like mega cap. And you're like, okay, mega sounds good. I'll do that one. I'll do the growth fund. And then one says like blue chip and you're like, I'll do that one. So you think it's diversified because it's got different names. But when you look in it, they're all invested in large US companies. So that technically is not diversified in that sense, but it's less risky than a stock. So I err on the side of having, if you don't know, really kind of what you're doing or really don't want to know, you know, every day you don't want to go in there and analyze a bunch of things just to buy a mutual fund that has exposure to stocks and also exposure to bonds. It's kind of like what a lot of people are getting offered in their 401k now, where it kind of has a date on it, or it could just say, you know, it's 70% stocks, 30% bonds, then that's great. Then you have exposure and you're not having to go in and pick a bunch of different bond funds, pick a bunch of different stock funds. Somebody's doing that for you. It's also, uh, there's a part of your book that scared me where it was like, oh, you think you've diversified because you're investing in all these different companies. But if you look at what the companies do, they're all tech, right? Yeah. So then if the tech industry suffers, you actually haven't diversified because you are only invested in one type of company. Whereas like, you know, I think a lot of people felt this with um, the pandemic where they were like, oh, I'm diversified because I'm invested in a lot of different like travel. Exactly. Yeah. But then all travel stopped. So you actually weren't diversified. And I read that and I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, because it's fun to invest in companies that you also maybe like you're buying their products and you're, you know, doing that and you're seeing it's part of this fund. But then, you know, like the S&P 500, if you look at a fund, it's supposed to be the top companies in the United States, you know, that are 
literally the top 500 companies. But when you look at that, maybe like 30 something percent of that fund is invested in companies that are all in the tech space. Mm-hmm. So now you're not really getting all 500. You're getting a you know piece of that. And it really is more of a technology fund at that point. So you do want to get into other different areas to kind of, again, not place bets to say, I'm going to make money if tech makes money. I'm not going to make money if tech doesn't make money. So yes, having true broader diversification is a safer way to invest. It might not go up as much if someone buys a tech fund and tech has a great year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be like, ah, I should have done that. But then if vice versa comes down, you're, you're decreasing the amount of money that you could potentially lose in a short period of time. Yeah. Okay, so what are the different meanings of portfolio? Portfolio, it's a funny, funny way because it's almost like trying to teach my three and a half year old the difference between like that's over there and that's their uh-huh. book bag. You know, it's kind of that same thing where it depends on how you're using it. So portfolio in a in the most broad sense, I would characterize that as the investments that you have. You could look at your own overall portfolio, or maybe you you said you got some stocks over here, you have some mutual funds, ETFs. But if you're talking about a specific mutual fund inside of that, that could be considered a portfolio. And ETFs and mutual funds are just super quick because my fan base is really learning at the beginning. Yeah. So mutual funds and exchange traded funds are both carry a basket of security. So that's a basket of stocks. It could have some bonds inside of there. And it's different than owning one individual stock or that's one individual company. So if you own these, they're not, again, not necessarily diversified, but mutual funds essentially are the original. They're the OG on the block. So they were around first, they got more popular, and then exchange-traded funds really gained their popularity in the 90s, where people wanted to own a basket of stocks and bonds, but they didn't want to wait to the end of the day to trade. So that's what happens with a mutual fund. So if you see, you know, I'm just going to make up some doomsday scenario, right? It's like something Mm -hmm. catastrophic happens. We finally get our big earthquake in California that everyone keeps scaring me about. Oh my God, knock on wood, Um, knock on wood. Knock on my head, all kinds of wood. (laughs) If something tragic were to happen and in the middle of, it happens in the middle of the day and you're like, oh, I want to sell all my investments, which I don't recommend doing any of that. But if you wanted to, you can't with a mutual fund. You have to wait till the end of the day and the trades get placed for you. If it's an exchange traded fund, you can do it in the middle of the day. So it gained popularity because it works like a mutual fund in the sense that it's broader diversification, but you have easier access to trades. The difference with exchange traded funds is many people buy them because you can get really, really specific on an area you want to invest in. So if you were just looking to invest in, you know, pharmaceutical up and coming drugs, there's going to be an exchange traded fund for that. If you want to invest in something that's a bunch of commodities, there's an exchange traded fund for that. Mutual funds are more for the longer term investor. So they don't have as many categories as an exchange-traded fund would. But keep in mind, just because you own them doesn't mean you're diversified. Because like you mentioned, Gabby, you might have a bunch of tech companies that you're owning inside of there. So you just want to take a high-level view of what you're actually investing in inside of those. Yeah. Can we talk about like how involved people should be once they invest? Because you talked about like auto rebalancing and like it seemed like you were really pro that in the book. So like how involved should people be and like what are the ways to be involved? 
Yeah, I think that you have to just be really honest with yourself, you know, you, and, and whatever you choose, just know that it's flexible. You're not signing a life contract, you know, you're doing it and you can change your mind, but you want to have a consistent and repeatable strategy so you know where your level of understanding is. So I would say myself as a, I have my own company, I have two kids, I have a dog that's got a lot of things going on. And when I think about my time, I don't have a ton of time to be trading and watching it all all the time. Mm -hmm. If you want to be doing it daily, then you can. Um, That's also bad too, though, because sometimes people make knee jerk reactions in the middle of the day and then they're like, "Eh, I shouldn't have done that. Or you can hire even like a robo advisor where you're paying very little fees, but they're looking and saying, okay, I want to be 70% in stocks. 30% in bonds. I have no idea how many stocks I should buy. I don't even know anything about bonds. You don't have to take on that responsibility yourself. You can hire an advisor. You can hire a mutual fund to take care of that for you. And then you can still be involved where once a month you're taking a look at it saying, okay, can I increase how much I'm putting in? Has my goal changed? Am I, you know, is my goal farther out now? Is it closer? And, And still be in touch with that. But I would really, really be honest with yourself and just kind of trial and error to see what works for you. And then you can, you can tweak it. So if you want to get into the weeds and it's a hobby of yours, have fun with it. But if you do it, most of the times what I see is people are like, I want to learn about this. This sounds really fun, but then life happens. Yeah. And then realistically they're like, eh, you know what? I really haven't looked at this in three weeks and I don't even know what it's invested in. And then they might buy something a little bit less risky, like a managed mutual fund that has a blend of different areas of the market. So in terms of like, if someone was going on and being like, should I invest in a, an up and coming company or should I invest in Coca-Cola? Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person? It depends on their level of involvement with the market in the first place. So I would say anytime you're doing something a little bit riskier, I wouldn't put more than like five to 10% of the money that you have to invest. So just to keep it clean in that sense. So you're not putting something too risky in something that's exciting because if it doesn't work out, then you're like, crap, I'm out of this money. But if it does work out, if it's really fun to participate in it, but you don't want to kind of like bet the house on that. I I think with your overall strategy to make it more um, conducive to what your goal is. But I do that. There's things that I hear about that I'm like, oh, that sounds really exciting. I want to get into it. But I know I'm only going to put 5% of what I have in there because if it doesn't do well, it's okay. I still, It was still worth the risk for me because I wanted to try or maybe I believed in that company and I wanted to have that experience. People are like, I want to get on the ground floor of something like Microsoft. Like That's what they feel like. <laughs> is going to happen. Yeah. And that's like the fun part about it too, is if it does work out, you can tell everybody how smart you are. You're like, I bought that when it was $5 a share and now it's this. But if it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you know, usually people don't go around telling you like, I bought this and it's a complete <laughs> bust. I lost all my money. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> that is true. So you talked about the S&P 500. Can you br- briefly say what the Dow Jones and what the NASDAQ are? Yeah, all of these indexes, the S&P 500, the Dow, the NASDAQ, that's a lot of the headlines that we see is like, the Dow Jones is doing this. And then we're all like, ah, should we be freaking out? So the Dow is the 30 top companies that are trading in the stock market. And people really look at that as an indicator of what they call like consumer sentiment. Like how are people feeling based on the movement of those companies? So that kind of matters 
when people are looking at market trends. So what the Dow is doing is really, where is the market trending? How are people feeling about it? The NASDAQ is really just a huge broad-based overview. So that's 3,000 companies that they're typically looking at where the S&P 500, these are these more focused 500 companies that are really in the large cap, so huge company space. So they all mean different things. I would err on the side of not reacting to it because anytime the market's moving, it's forward thinking. And then by the time we do it, so if I see an article come out a headline like the Dow Jones is down X percent today and people aren't feeling good. I mean, right now, this is a great, great reason, right? We're, we're coming out of COVID. There's this Delta variant. It's like, how are people feeling? And the Dow's doing all these things. You don't necessarily want to react to that because the market quickly prices that in. Mm -hmm. So by the time I'm reading that headline, then I go, I do my own research. And then I'm like, let me think about it for a day or two before I make any changes. It could have swung back the other way by then. So we just have to keep in mind that anything we're hearing, the market's already priced that in. Right, right. It it wasn't like that before. You had to read a newspaper. Mm -hmm. You had to wait for information. You know, you had to call. When I first started in this industry, I was working for advisors and we traded stocks, but also commodities. I literally had to write tickets with my hand right. on a thing and timestamp it. You know, it wasn't like I had a client one day, he he rolled over in bed because we're California time. The market opens our morning time. And he, he put too many zeros and he made a huge trade and he didn't realize for an hour. And he's like, well, you know, I was on my phone and I wasn't really paying attention. And I clicked it and, you know, it wasn't like that before. You didn't have this quick, quick, quick uh-huh. access to everything. So I, I kind of keep in mind that like by the time we get information, it's it's already been priced into the market. So wow. just those headlines are there as kind of indicators of how people are feeling, but you don't want to have these knee-jerk reactions to that because you'll lose your mind and Mm -hmm. making decisions reactive doesn't help. And I'll just add one more thing. When I was working as a financial advisor, I did on the East Coast, the West Coast, I had clients that were working at CNBC and this was during the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So after that time, after the low of 2009, it was in March, People still weren't feeling good about the market, but it kept going up and up and up. And everyone's like, nope. Right. My clients that worked at CNBC, their stress levels were so high and they couldn't even manage their own money because they were constantly in panic mode because their jobs were to create these headlines and they couldn't remove themselves from it. So that was kind of like, you know, I just want people to know that even people that are really involved in this oftentimes delegate the responsibility because it is really hard to separate emotions from the headlines, from what your long-term goals are with your money. Wow. Wow. Where can my audience find out more about you and your book and um, get more information from you? I hang out a lot on Instagram. I make some educational (laughs) videos based on information that I get or questions that I get. And my website is empoweredplanning.com and you can download the first chapter of the book for free. Kind of check out my style if it's something that you're interested in. And Instagram is empowered underscore planning. And what's the book called? Investing is your superpower. Woo! Here, look, I have it. Aww. Thank you. And it's got, look at the pages. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Best student award goes to you. Thank you.
we're going to hear from your friend and mine, actress, writer, singer, and apparently huge investment enthusiast, Anna Akana. Hi, my name is Anna Akana. I'm an actress and writer, and I know Gabby through also being a content creator for many, many years. Yes. I texted you being like, would you ever want to come on Bad With Money? Is there something that you would want to talk about? And you like immediately got excited and were like, we have to talk about the stock market. So what happened? What, why was that like the thing that you were like, oh my God. So I started taking stock market classes like for two or three years and I was kind of like learning about it. So I was like, I don't understand how this works. I am making some money right now. What do I do with it other than like put it in a savings account? Mm-hmm. And I started learning about covered calls and leaps and bear call spreads and just like options trading in general. And I was blown away, one, by how easy it was and two, how much money I was able to make, whether the stock market was going up or down. And I was like, oh, and as I did more research into the history of the stock market, I saw how convoluted the language became in order to discourage anyone from the middle class to use their money to make money. And so it felt like kind of like a cheat sheet in GTA or something to me where I could just start creating five to 7% returns every month based on what I had in the market. So I've been trying to teach everyone that I can to learn about covered calls and to start investing now. Okay. So when you wanted to start, where did you start? When I wanted to start, I was reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I was also listening to podcasts from a lot of financial gurus. But I had a friend who was actually taking a class called uh, Trading Stocks Made Easy with Tyrone Jackson. And he was like, you have to take this class because once you're in it, he walks you through exactly how to do the trade, which was always the most intimidating part on my end, how to execute the trade within the software. And so once I started learning about that and learning how to do multiple option trades on top of each other, I was just like... Everyone needs to know. If I had known this when I was 17, I would have so much money right now. It's just insane to me. And, you know, I mean, you're in the creator space and it costs Mm -hmm. so much money to make stuff. I have spent my life savings many times over on like a short film or a music video because if you want to pay people Mm -hmm. well, that stuff very quickly adds up to like fifty to $100,000 to make something big. And so I was like, there has to be another way other than just taking brand deals or saving up my money. Like, is there any way I can have my money generate money and then use that to create the thing I want to create? And stock trading has been a godsend for that. So what was your step after that when you were like, Okay, I'm ready to take action. Did your first action happen in the class? Yes. So the very first introductory class I took was explaining the basic concept of covered calls to me. And then we walked through a sample trade. I had already been in the stock market. I thought you just buy Apple and I hold it (laughs) forever until it's profitable. But I didn't know I could use my shares of Apple to actually make money before I decided to sell it at a profit. And so my teacher and my uh, friend who introduced me to the class took my you know, TD Ameritrade app and walked me through exactly how to do the trade. What is a covered call? The easiest way to explain it is like, but if I have 100 shares of Apple, let's say I bought them for like a dollar a share. So I spent $100 on 100 shares of Apple. And you think Apple's going to go up. So you're like, hey, Anna, I'll buy your Apple shares at $2 a share for 200 bucks in two weeks. And as long as you just hold them for me. So for you, instead of investing the money up front, you can give me what's known as a premium. So you could give me like, I don't know, $15, $20 or something for me to just agree to hold my Apple shares for a set price for two weeks. When the two weeks comes up, 
if Apple rose an exponential amount of money, I still owe you my shares at the price we agreed upon. Oh. So you make a profit if you decide to flip them. At the end of the two weeks, if Apple hasn't exactly gone up where you want it, you can be like, okay, never mind. I don't want to invest the full money for that. You keep the 15, 20 bucks and I'm not going to buy your shares. So then I get to go into a contract with someone else. And typically with covered call writing, about $75 every two weeks is good for one set of 100 shares. So imagine if you have like 1,000 shares of something or 500 shares of something, you can write five to 10 contracts and just start making money on stuff you already own. But how are you doing the contracts? You're sending them off into the ether and someone around the world decides to buy them. When did you feel like, okay, I'm on my training wheels? Like I'm doing this Mm -hmm. a little bit by myself. So the first like month, because I trade every Monday for about five to 10 minutes. That's it. I don't have to do like crazy research. I don't have to be watching the stock market all the time. I just am every Monday, five to 10 minutes. I do my trades. I'm done. Okay. So it took me about like a month before I was like, oh, I really understand this. And I need everyone else to know what this is. And obviously there are like, caveats like if the market's going down you want to switch from covered call writing to like what's known as a bear call spread if the market's going up you can also make trades where you're like gambling that next year a certain stock is going to go up but covered call writing is the most conservative and risk-free trade you're making money on top of money from doing that yes so what is the bear call Bear call spread is basically you buy two options and pit them against each other in order to collect the leftover premium when the market is going down. I know it sounds so confusing. Yeah, It sounds confusing, but that's why I usually teach everyone covered calls because that's the easiest one to understand if you don't want to invest too much time learning the actual different kinds of options trades. Right. Once you get the hang of it, you're like, oh, I fucking get this. (laughs) With any like board game, there's sort of like, a learning right. curve before you mm-hmm. understand like what you're doing in Settlers of Catan. Same with the stock market. Like it seems a little inaccessible, but once you like kind of do the trade once or twice, you really start to catch on to what this means. So what is a leap? You mentioned that earlier. A leap is I can buy an option for Apple. If I think Apple's going to go up next year, I can buy what's known as a leap. So I can buy that like one year or two years from now. And I agree to sell someone an option at a set Mm -hmm. price. So if Apple is like $200 now and I decide to buy a leap option that expires next year for also $200, every time Apple goes up a dollar, my leap is worth $50 more. So every dollar movement of the stock, I get $50 if I decide to sell it. So it's it's really good for growth stocks leaps. Like if you believe in a company is going to grow long term for the year, I can buy that and then sell it whenever it's profitable. How much did you start with? How much did you put in, if you don't mind? So I started investing in 2015, and I would put about 10% of every paycheck just into the stock market to buy and hold. Wow. So I had about $5,000 in the stock market. And then when I learned about covered calls, I was like, holy shit. And I started putting like 20, 30% or whatever I could back into the stock market. So last year, I had 500000 in there because I just went insane. And then I was able to make 200000 Just from covered calls? Just from covered calls. Okay. So what? Holy shit. <laughs> so you kind of did the research and you were like, this is a secret that they're keeping from marginalized people or people who are not like super of a certain class because of this type of growth? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. One of my friends who's a producer, like I introduced him to it and he actually went one step further and created a sheet where 
if you put in like how much your account balance was, it would show you by what day you would have how much money. So it, like the compound interest of building and building your money off of trades and, and how much you can actually make that into like a wealth machine. I was able to see like, oh my God, if I keep up this rate of growth, like in 10 years, I could have $5 million in my account. And, and then that could generate more and more and more and more. For people that are listening, like if they're scared or if they're like, you know, you've been told mm -hmm. like, oh, you're going to put in a measly amount of your paycheck. Let's say someone can start with 50 bucks, maybe. You're so scared. Like you're told, like, if you don't understand it, you're just going to lose your money. And like, did you have any of that fear? What is the fear? And like, is it just completely unfounded? I definitely had the fear, especially because my father had a really rough time in the stock market. He lost a lot of money in it. For that, I would say you can avoid that completely by making safe trades and by investing in what's known as the S&P 500. So I typically, if I'm doing covered calls, I'm only using stocks of companies like Coca-Cola, Apple, Home Depot, like what are known as like the list of the most safe stocks. Yeah. That does mean that the barrier to entry is higher. So like, typically one of those stocks could be anywhere from 100 to 150 bucks mm -hmm. and you need 100 stocks to write a covered call that said i'm always like buy them slowly accumulate them until you can get to that 100 because also by then your stock's going to be worth more if you're investing in these long-term companies i have lost money but every time i have lost money it's because i got greedy and i started <laughs> deviating from the discipline I was learning. So I would recommend Tyrone Jackson's podcast. It's completely free. He explains a lot of the fundamentals. And he's like, whenever you get greedy, you lose money. And sure enough, when I'm like, well, you know, these Tesla premiums are like $1,000. Like, let me just go ahead and invest in it. And then Tesla kind of like tanks for a while. Yeah. And I'm stuck with these shares I can't make money on. Or I've accidentally like executed the trade wrong because I was so excited and I fucked up on my end. So that can happen. But if you stay to the discipline that he kind of sets out and you are safe, Mm -hmm. He says wealth building should be boring. And whenever it doesn't feel boring, that's when you're getting really greedy. Interesting. Okay, so is it separate from retirement investing? Or are they all together? I have a SEP IRA, which is basically like someone else from a financial institution like Oppenheimer or whatever, take my money and they invest it. So I have two. I have like, this is my stock money that I'm going to use to aggressively grow. And this is my like safe mutual bonds that a financial guy is dealing with. So when you say you do your trades every day on Monday, what what are you sitting down to do? I'm basically sitting down. I have like a big spreadsheet. So if I have uh, multiple contracts going on at a time, they have rolling expiration dates. So every Monday... Uh, one of them has expired or been assigned, which means the person on the other end of the trade has decided to buy my 100 shares. So you've put up like, uh, this is for sale mm -hmm. and it's expired. Nobody's bought it. Correct. Or you have one where you go, oh, somebody wants this. Somebody bought it and decided to like take my shares away and give me the money in exchange for them. Okay. So every Monday I look at which ones got assigned to someone else and which ones expired. And the ones that have expired, I write another contract on them. So I keep making money on the ones that have expired. If something was assigned and I have all the money from selling the shares, I can either buy another hundred shares of that exact stock or I look at other stock that I might want to buy and then I write another contract on that. Was there like a huge dip when COVID started that was scary? Yes. It was a huge dip, but everyone in the stock market thought of it as a fire sale. And within 90 days, the stock market rebounded back to where it had been. A fire sale? Like everyone was just like, buy everything? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jeez. And so the people that you talk to, are they mostly like women or other people of color? Or like, is this kind of like the crusade that you're on? 
the class honestly was made up of all different kinds of demographics. So we had like pretty equal men and women. It was ranging in terms of age. So like the youngest people there were sort of like 20, you know, I'm in my thirties and there were people in like forties, fifties, sixties who had been attending his class for a while. There was a lot of entertainment folks, like people who had been in voice acting or, you know, just worked pretty regularly as guest stars are recurring and, you know, freelancers. Yeah, freelancers, like in our business where you get a lump sum and you're like, what do I do with this lump sum? For now, everyone was like, I want to learn how to invest because our jobs are so sporadic in terms of when we get paid. It's good to know, like, I have my investing on the side to like keep generating consistent income. Okay, so we're really on on it about compounding interest and about Mm -hmm. making money from money. And I think you're right. This is a thing that has been like historically kept from people of lower class or like, I think people listening are just like, this is so overwhelming. Yes. I will honestly, like if I talk to someone about it, I'll, I'll be like, can I record this on my phone? Mm -hmm. Just cause like, I think you have to listen back to it a few times. And like, what would you say to someone who's like, this is overwhelming and I am dumb? I would say, you know, I needed to hear the explanation of what the hell a covered call was like four or five times before I actually could. Because the idea is so foreign to us, you know, and there are other trades that I'm learning that are much more advanced where I'm like, I've heard this explanation 20 times. I don't fucking get like crypto. I don't understand blockchain. I've read so much about it. Don't fucking get it. I would say, you know, there's a reason that they make it kind of confusing. And there's a reason the jargon is confusing. And it's because it is a really empowering way to build wealth. And they want there to be barriers to entry. Even my IRA, I'm like, I know I give all this money to a manager of some kind of financial manager, he guarantees I get like, what, three, 4% a year, but he's probably using my money to generate himself five to 7% and pocketing the rest. Mm -hmm. And so it is a barrier entry, there is a learning curve. However, if you conquer that learning curve, you can learn how to make money. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to listen to these explanations until they soak in? I find money to be one of the most empowering tools possible. Like it it gives you access to better healthcare. It gives you access to good food. It gives you freedom for your time, you know, to indulge in hobbies or to to stress less. Like I used to buy my groceries at the 99 cent store and I was super broke and in crazy debt and my phone was being shut off every other month. And I was like, I hate this. I don't Mm -hmm. ever want to feel this stress again. And so I started reading about the personal finance world and how to budget and, and all of that. And then now I've taken it one step further where I'm like, okay, what do I do with money when I have it instead mm-hmm. of just, you know, drowning in debt? So I would say, if you feel dumb, don't worry. The way that it's set up is supposed to make you feel dumb and frustrated and make you want to give up. Yeah. So listen to easily to digest podcasts, watch the videos, allow yourself to hear these explanations multiple times until you get it. Because on the other end of that is financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I would ask you to start your own podcast, but I feel like that would just take all of my <laughs> listeners. So please don't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like you just opened like a, a TD Ameritrade or like you pick whatever thing that you can personally manage and then you just go from there. It really doesn't matter which one. <laughs> like I would say like TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, stay the fuck away from Robinhood. Robinhood is terrible. Interesting. Um, Why? Robinhood basically during the GameStop saga, which has been one of the most revolutionary stock market occurrences of all time, Robinhood shut down buying pressure. Yeah. And so they fucked their customers. They just launched their IPO and the CEO dumped 25% of his shares. The CMO dumped 100% of her shares. So everyone's kind of clearly jumping ship and just trying to cash in because Robinhood's probably going down. Because of how they reacted with GameStop? Yeah, and they did some very shady stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, They're being investigated for insider trading. Wow. (laughs) 
Yeah. What about um, like acorns or anything like that? I honestly would recommend going with one of the big ones, mm-hmm. um, like Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, places where they're kind of FDIC insured and they can control their own sort of like order flow. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of these acorns or Robin Hoods go through other entities to execute the trades. You want to go with someone who has their own back end to execute the trade. Wait, what does that mean? So like Robinhood makes most of its money selling information called payment for order flow, which means a Citadel, for example, will be like, hey, tell us what trades all of your customers are making. We'll pay for that information. But what it means is they're able to kind of manipulate the market or see when they want to do pump and dumps or can like execute trades a hair second faster than retail like us can execute trades. Um, And so there's a conflict of interest inherently in the way that like a Robinhood or an Acorn are set up. Anyone that does payment for order flow is is kind of sketch. Any of the big ones usually tend to be really good. And you can look up that information like on Reddit or whatever, like who can execute their own trades to the back end. But honestly, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, I all have my seal of approval. Thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> I did not expect when I texted you the true info dump that occurred. And I'm so <laughs> pleased. I would love that spreadsheet. Uh- Yes, happy to send it to you. Yeah, and I think like this highlights something that we talk about on the show a lot, which is like just talk to your friends or talk to people you know or ask because you would just never have any idea what someone was doing with their money if you didn't say like, what's your thing with money? Are you super into investing? Or like, you know, like people don't tell, people don't talk to each other. So thank you. Oh my God, of course. And I hope everyone in here starts looking into it because time in the market is more important than timing of the market and give yourself years to build wealth. Where can people find you and more about you? Anna Akana on all the places. Thank you. (laughs) Were you keeping those notes? I did. I was. I bookmarked page after page in Shinobu's book. I will be re-listening to Anna's segment many times over. Hell, I might even take a class. The first step for me is to hear all this in one big info dump and then parse it out and let it settle in my mind. I'm scared. I have a tiny account with $800 in it that I've accumulated in the last couple years and have done nothing with. Time to see what we can grow.